0: Today's scripture reading uh, comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Uh, it could be found on page 823 of some of your Pew Bibles. Uh, note that today I'll actually be reading from the New American Standard uh, Bible, uh, the 1977 version, uh, which may slightly differ from what's in the Pew Bible, but also even when you first flip it up in, in your phone. Um. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, uh, the NASB 1977 version. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from man, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who has raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. This is the word of God.
1: One of the questions I used to always think about as a child was this question. Why is the Bible the Word of God? Now, how many of you have ever thought that question? Raise your hand. Why is the Bible the Word of God? Why don't we think that the Quran is the Word of God? Why don't we think that the Bhagavad Gita is the Word of God? Why don't we think that the Book of Mormon, written by Joseph Smith, is the Word of God? Why is it that we hold to the Bible to being the Word of God, but we don't hold to these other texts that are considered sacred texts by other religions. Well, part of the reason for that um, is hitting us right at the beginning of the book of Galatians. Now, take a look at verse 1 again of Galatians chapter 1. When Paul comes to us, he comes as an apostle who's writing not only to the churches in Galatia, but to the churches in all times, And in all seasons, because he claims two things. Notice right at the beginning of Galatians chapter one, he claims to be an apostle and he claims to be not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Christ. So, first of all, let me ask, what does it mean to be an apostle? Uh, I've known people today who thought that they were apostles and they called themselves. I remember one guy, um, I still remember him. His name was Apostle Washington, and he thought that he was an apostle. For today. But why is it that we acknowledge Paul to be an apostle, but maybe don't acknowledge people, um, living today to be apostles? And the reason comes from 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, and also comes from other places where Paul talks about his authority. But what we see in 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 1, is Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Lord? So to be an apostle, you had to actually see Christ with your own eyes, and you had to be given an authoritative commission from Christ to preach to a certain group of people, in Paul's case, the Gentiles. And there was something else that went with it that Paul talks about in other places when he talks about that the signs of an apostle were with him, and they included signs, wonders, and miracles. And we get this from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So to be an apostle, you had to actually see Christ, the risen Christ, with your own two eyes. And then not only that, you had to hear him say, go and preach. And then the third thing is, is your authority needed to be made manifest to other people, and in a sense made evident to other people through signs and wonders and miracles, and this is one of the reasons why uh, there's a whole large group of Christendom today who thinks that, that signs and wonders and miracles aren't in the church today because they were tied with the apostolic gift. So even though Paul himself struggled with sickness and with an eye injury and lands in Galatia and in chapter four, he says it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And we know that. Paul got sick or something happened to them, and that's why he was stuck in Galatia and had an opportunity to preach the gospel to them for the first time. Even though he was a weak man who had sickness and illness in his life, nevertheless, through him, God healed people. And through him, God did miracles. And through him, people saw that his authority came not from man, nor through the agency of human beings, but through Christ. This is important for a lot of the reasons. The reason why we believe that the Bible is the Word of God is because it comes to us through apostolic or prophetic authority. And in Paul's case, it was apostolic authority. And I want to talk about that for a moment because I know that there, there is a very large group in Christendom known as the Catholic Church that believes that the authority of the apostles was passed on from Peter all the way down to the Pope Today, and they believe in apostolic su- succession. But the problem I have with that is, is that then the people who are sitting in the, in the chair being Pope, they haven't seen the Lord with their own two eyes. And they haven't necessarily been the people through whom God has done signs and wonders and miracles. And they're being appointed... To that position comes from man. You get a whole bunch of cardinals. They get together in a place called Castle Gandolfo and they have a vote. And they go through several rounds until they can finally agree upon the right person who's chosen. Then they send up this little white um, puff of smoke out of the top of the chimney at Castle Gandolfo. And then the world knows that we have a new pope. The pope is selected through the agency of man. And we need to be careful because this Pope, although I do like so much of what he's done in our world, and he's certainly been an amazing example of humility, he doesn't understand the gospel. If you saw the top five things, the top five videos that CNN said you should be watching this week, one of them uh, was of the Pope comforting a poor little boy who had lost his father. And he comes up to the Pope, and it was very compassionate. It was very compelling. The little boy came up, and he was supposed to stand in front of the microphone when the Pope was... Was welcoming some children and ask his question. But instead of being able to talk in front of a microphone, he was so scared that he couldn't say anything. So then somebody ushered him right up to the Pope. He grabbed the Pope. He cried on the Pope's shoulder and he said, my daddy is an atheist. Is he in heaven? And you know what the Pope said? And you can watch it. Go to CNN.com right now if you want to turn on your phone, phones and look at it. I'll give you permission to do that today and once only. You can look at your phone. Read, uh, look at CNN and look at the video. And then it's got all the words and the translation of what the Pope said. You know what the Pope said? He said, son, your dad was a good man. And that's the reason why the Pope thought that the man's, that, that the little boy's father would be in heaven. The Bible says that For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there is no salvation no matter how good a person is. And so, brothers and sisters... An office of authority that comes to you by man with a message from man rather than from the risen Christ himself is not a legitimate authority. So Paul claims to have apostolic authority, and we hold to his letters, his 11 letters in the New Testament, as well as the letters of the other apostles or those who are part of the apostolic band, as we call them. We put them together with the words that came through the prophets of the Old Testament, that we've known were the Holy Scriptures, and this is the Bible that we hold to. And so we hold to it because it comes to us under apostolic authority. But there's another reason why we hold to the Bible as being the Word of God. And it is because the authority that Paul claims is the authority of the One who got His commission through Jesus Christ, who God the Father raised from the dead, in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, our, our entire faith rests upon this one thing. Did Christ rise from the dead? And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are of, among all people most to be pitied. In other words, we're pitiful creatures. We're stupid, we're pitiful, we're wrong, we're deceived, we're liars even because we're saying that God raised Jesus from the dead if in fact the dead are not raised. Well, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain. It's futile. It's worthless. And you're a pitiful person to waste your time each Sunday coming to this church and listening to somebody who believes the resurrection if the resurrection didn't happen. So Paul's saying his authority to tell the Galatian church what to do, to speak to us and to every church and all generations through what has been called the Bible, comes because of God the Father raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And brothers and sisters, there is more evidence that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead than there is for any other historical event that we have out there. And if you want evidence, look at what happened to the Roman world. How could that happen? How could Christianity go from being a sect where all the people who hung out with Jesus ran away from Him and betrayed Him because they were afraid for their own skins, yet those same people turned around, preached a resurrection, and as a result, so many people believed and the entire Roman world was changed. You have no explanation for world history if there's not an empty tomb. People don't go from being betrayers to being martyrs unless they saw something and they really believed it from their heart of hearts. So because of the, the his, historicity of the resurrection and the testimony of the apostles and their authoritative commission from God the Father, we believe that Paul's apostolic authority comes to all the churches. It comes to the risen Christ and God the Father. And that means that what he says to them, God is saying to us in the church Today, he says it to the churches of Galatia, plural in verse two, not just a one. So we know that he's speaking to all the churches. But because this was a letter to people that Paul knew of, he was going to speak to their situation directly. But notice what's the very first thing he says. He doesn't jump into problems. He doesn't jump into all that's wrong in Galatia. And the Lord knows there was an awful lot wrong in Galatia that was very, very Serious, And Paul addressed that throughout the letter. What is the very first thing he says to them in verse 3? He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's anything we can get from the beginning of this letter, it is simply this. That God wants you to experience His grace today. What is it? I have two questions when I think about God's grace. Well, what is it? And the second question is, what does it look like in my life or in your life? Well, when you think about what it is, you're tempted to think of it just in relationship to salvation. You know this verse in Ephesians that everybody quotes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. So many people say, well, when we hear uh, the grace of God, we're speaking about salvation. We're speaking about forgiveness. We're speaking about what one of my friend calls fire insurance. That on the last day, uh, when you stand before God, you're not going to burn because you've got fire insurance. You've got Jesus. And that makes it all okay. But is that all that the grace of God is? A salvation that looks to a future time that's simply fire insurance? That's the way many people think of it. And those same people who think of it that way then think it's also a license. It's a free ticket to do whatever you want to do in your life right now because it really doesn't matter because on the last day, Jesus took my penalty. I'm going to go scot-free. Everything's going to be okay. Well, see, the grace of God as we come to Scripture is more than just forgiveness, but certainly it starts with a forgiveness that is not of ourselves. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. We didn't deserve it. It came through believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what what else is Paul speaking of when he says grace to you? What is it? If you think about what Paul says in Romans 6, and if you were here for the Resurrection Sunday message that I had a chance to preach in um, the joint worship service, we took a close look at... Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 6. And one of the things Paul says about grace in Romans chapter 6 is, he says that because of grace, therefore do not let sin reign any longer in your mortal bodies that you would obey its lusts thereof. But present yourselves to God and the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For you are not under law, but under grace. So to be under grace is to be under the realm, under the place, under the blessing, under the ability of the fact that you no longer live to sin as your master. You live to Jesus Christ as your master. And that obedience that he talks about in Romans 6 is an obedience that comes from the heart. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So not only is the grace of God bringing to all of us forgiveness, so when Jesus says through the Apostle Paul, grace you, that means to all of you who trust in Christ that you're forgiven. Isn't that amazing? He's saying something more. He says you're empowered. Sin is no longer your master. You don't have to live to it. You can present all that you are and all that you have to God. Because of His amazing grace. And if I stop there, you know, and run on to the next point of my sermon, then you can say, wow, that was great, Pastor. Forgiveness and power not to live to sin. Isn't that awesome? Isn't God awesome? Everybody say, God is awesome. God is awesome. That's amazing. But you know what? That isn't all that the grace of God is about. As we come through the New Testament, we see that it's even more awesome than we thought before. Because what we see in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, around verse 10, we see that grace leads to a radically transformed life. Now, grab your Bibles and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Excuse me, uh, chapter 15, verse 10. This is in the middle of Paul's testimony of what happens. And he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But then he says in verse 10, and here's the radical transformation I'm talking about. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So he says in this passage that the grace of God brings a radical transformation. You are no longer what you were. You become something different. And I know some of you have been thinking about this in your life. And you've been thinking, Am I a Christian? Have I experienced God's grace? What kind of transformation has there been in my life? And I want, I want to tell you, be very careful. Because on the one hand, we can say that to be a Christian is someone who, who confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believes in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. So regardless of how clean you are, you think, in your own personal life and how far God has brought you. The trusting in Christ alone is what brings you into that relationship. And you are as saved at that moment as you are for all eternity. But then on the other hand, what Paul is speaking of at this point is part of what we call the sanctification process. The transformation that can happen not only in a moment when he's converted, but over the course of your life where God makes you into something amazing that you weren't before because of His amazing power at work in your life. And if you've been a Christian for a while and you can't say that you can point to any specific thing that you've, that you've either stopped doing or started doing simply because you love Jesus, then I challenged you last week, you need to consider, are you really a Christian? Because... The beginning of a relationship with God in justification is also the beginning point of God to change you, to transform you, to make you in his image so that he who began a good work in you would complete it. And so, of course, we should examine ourselves as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, and see if we're in the faith. And I want all of you to examine yourselves and ask yourselves the question, is the grace of God in my life? But at the same time, I don't want you to get so morbidly introspective that you think that because you know that you still struggle like I still struggle, that that the presence of the struggle against sin in your life means that you haven't wrapped you haven't been radically transformed. You wouldn't even be aware of the struggle against sin in your life if you hadn't been radically transformed by God's grace. Because the people who aren't Christians, they don't care about whether they're sinning. It's fun. It's party life. But the people who know the grace of God, they're aware of the struggle against sin. And even though you might feel like sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back, and it seems like you might be falling more than you're running and walking with the Lord, but nevertheless... To be in the struggle itself is an example of being transformed by God's amazing grace. Now, notice something else. Um, he says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The grace of God is the power of to do the ministry that God's called you to do. And it's His strength, not your strength. So when you do it, you can say like Paul says when he writes to the Romans in Romans 15, for I presume to speak of nothing except what Christ accomplished through me. The grace of God is the presence of Christ in your life to do things for the Lord that you could never do on your own strength. There's one other thing I want to draw attention to. Turn with me quickly to 2 Corinthians. um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. This is a passage that a lot of people sort of gloss over and something about grace that we would be tempted to forget. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We think it was a bodily illness, but we know it was something that he prayed, he says in this passage in 2 Corinthians 12. He prayed three times, God, take it away. I don't like it. It was some form of a bodily weakness, some form of a weakness we know. He says in verse 8, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And you know what God said in verse 9? He said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. The grace of God is the power that comes to you in your weakness. And what I think is wrong... With the way many of you are thinking about Christianity is, you're thinking of Christianity as, is pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and getting your life together in the flesh so you can be good apart from the power of Christ. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the grace of God that comes to you in your weakness and your admission before God that you're a sinner. And you're confessing the fact that, yeah, I struggle, I still struggle. And at that point of confession, you find that God doesn't take away your struggle. He meets you in your weakness. He gives you His grace. You cry out to Him and you find the strength to obey that is promised to every single one of us who are Christians before the Lord. That's the grace of God. Forgiveness. Power not to live to sin. A transformed life. Power to do the ministry that God wants you to have and a power that's perfected in the weakest of moments when you realize I can't do this, but you're in me and your grace is sufficient. I'd like to ask Karen Lee, Karen, if you're here to to come up and share with us how God is, Karen, need to be um, working in your life. So come on up, Karen. Now, Karen, I want to tell you why I'm putting you on the spot like this. You've had a lot of people in your life who've come up to me and said, Pastor Tim, you need to get Karen up here. So forgive me for putting you on the spot. But Karen, come up here and share for, for a few minutes about how the grace of God's been working in your life.
2: Hi, uh, thank you, Pastor Tim, for inviting me up here. Um, this is the first time I've like, done anything like this. So I apologize for any, um, I guess, like any Stage fright or anything else like that. Um, so, I come from a very churched background. Um, I'm probably as church as you can possibly get. I like to say that I've been baptized twice because my mom was pregnant with me when she got baptized in '96. So, that was the first time, and the second time was when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, and so, my entire life was spent in the church. Um, I've done all of the, all of the things like from going to Sunday school for many, many years in my life to um, memorizing countless Bible verses for Awana dollars. And
1: um, <laughs> <dollars>. Yes,
2: <yeah>, so, <laughs> um, I was in youth group. I was a student leader. I led worship. I was a peer counselor. I went on missions trips. And I did all these things because I felt like that's what I needed to do in order to be a Christian. And at the time I, um, I truly believe that I was saved because of the things that I did. And because of this, um, this determination in my heart to be as perfect and as good as I can possibly be. Um, I was, I, I was like, so so present in the church, I was doing every, all these things, but on weekdays, I was worshiping a different God, which is my pride and self-dependency. Um, for my entire life, I've always believed that um, everything that you have to everything you have in this life comes from um, your personal work for it. and I worked so hard to um, establish this pristine reputation to, um, get really great, good grades to work hard for like the praises of other people. And I, my identity rested really firmly on what other people thought of me. Um, and that was, brought me a lot of joy in life in that, like when I got complimented, it was really nice, but, um, it also brought me a lot of distress and insecurities because, um, You know, when you rest on something that's so fickle as other people's opinions, you're often going to be disappointed. And so um, in spite of appearing perfect on the outside and doing all these things, I was really struggling hard with a lot of insecurities in my heart, Um, a lot of body image issues, a lot of... um, Just anxiety about um, my social interactions, about the stability of my relationships, and it was really, um, it was really tearing me apart from the inside. But I felt like I had to keep, keep going and keep running towards something. And so I um, continued to do this thing where I just like keep you know, glossing over things and trying to, there's this, um, there's this analogy called the floating duck syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's like the idea that a duck looks like it's like just floating peacefully above the water, but really underneath the water, it's like paddling super, super hard. So that's how I felt about my life. And it was exhausting. And I think, um, my lowest point came around last semester. Um, I was, very overworked and very much just losing motivation to doing the things that I used to take pleasure in and I went to counseling services at my college and was told for the first time that I might be depressed and that just really crushed me in that this whole this whole thing that I've built for myself this perfect life that I've been striving for it just seemed like it was all nullified in that moment because clearly I was broken and and that just confirmed that for me. And so I I broke down in front of my worship team. I told them everything I was struggling with. And um, they prayed over me. that I. And I, I had told them that I don't understand what grace is. And I don't understand what grace is because I don't think I can even love myself. So how can I possibly understand the grace of God? Um, and they prayed over me. And at that moment, I didn't understand um, anything that they were saying. But I think... I subconsciously at that moment just realized in the midst of my brokenness that I can't do anything in this life for myself and that I'm so weak and helpless and it got to the point where I can't even do the things I was good at anymore and so even though I wasn't aware of it fully at that moment when I let everything down at the feet of Jesus um, was the same moment that Jesus came into my life and really stirred in my heart and like for the first time i felt like i wasn't alone anymore i felt like i wasn't walking this life by myself and i felt like i didn't have to depend on myself in order to um, in order to find joy and peace and honestly it's i mean i can't even describe in words like all the little things that happened because i don't really know what happened but all i know is that i i feel like i have this profound um hope in something that is greater than anything I can ever create for myself. And because of that, I rest on, my my identity rests upon something that is greater than my own abilities. And I have, I mean, like, there's just so many, there's, like, countless, like, areas where I've just, like, recognized these sins and insecurities and small things in my life that I used to just be okay with. And recognizing pride and recognizing um, my idolatry of, um, just, um, other people's opinions of me and, um, upon recognizing those things, like realizing that I still struggle, but I have something greater to hold on to. And so I, I can't say that I'm like at the end of my line right now, because honestly, there's still so much work to do. I mean, I'm still struggling with the flesh and struggling to, um, overcome a lot of the past, um, habits that I've developed over 21 years of my life, but, um, I do know that, um, uh, through all of this, like, God has been, has been just transforming me, and I, I didn't believe in this stuff before, like, if someone told me, like, oh, God transforms people, like, I used to just, like, wave that off, and I, This is not something that I believed in personally, but I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen, like, just how much joy there is once you taste the grace of God. You just want more and more, and that's how I feel right now. So, yeah, um, that's pretty much it.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. It's really encouraging to hear what God is doing in people's lives. And don't you see it's a process? You know, you can be a Christian and then God's grace touches you again and you become filled and filled and filled again more and more with a sense of his love and his grace and his care over your life. Notice as we come back to Galatians chapter one, that Paul not only says grace to you and he's saying it to every single one of you today. Grace to you. He says, and peace. And what kind of a peace is this? There's a lot of talk about peace in our world today because our world is full of war. Our world is full of people not getting along, and there's a great need of peace. And when we come to the scriptures, we find that peace happens in three directions. The first is with God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have received our introduction by grace, by faith into this grace in which we stand. So by faith and according to God's grace, we find God's peace. And that's a peace with God. He's no longer angry with us. That means that all of our sins, past, present and future, have already been dealt with. And so God looking down at you is not saying he's angry. And you need to, you need to be reminded of that. Because sometimes you think because you're not perfect and because you're struggling. That God's still angry with you. He's not. That's why Paul says to you, grace and peace. An assurance of peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But think about the peace not only as being peace with God, but peace within. In Philippians 4, we have a picture of this. Um, Be anxious for nothing, but... In everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you take your burdens and you pray and you praise and you thank God for being in control of even the difficult things in your life that are robbing you of peace, that at that moment of casting your burden upon the Lord, His peace comes into your heart so that you feel and you experience His peace. And it doesn't make any sense. The peace of God which surpasses comprehension. It doesn't make any sense given how difficult your life is right now to have this kind of peace. And yet you have it because you've gone to Christ in prayer and it's come to you through Christ as you've given your burden to the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice as we come back to Galatians chapter 1, as we're finishing up this small little section as he begins the letter. We learn something else. God doesn't just want you to experience his grace and his peace. He wants you to experience his deliverance through Christ, his rescue through Christ. If you're looking at the New International Version, um, we see that Paul says grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. From the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. In the New American Standard, it says, um, Grace and peace um, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. Brothers and sisters, is there any doubt that we live in an evil age? I get up every morning and one of the first things I do, first thing is check my messenger, I confess. I don't pray first. I check to see who texted me while I was sleeping. All right. God, forgive me. Thank you, Jesus. Now, the second the second thing that I do is I go to my CNN app to see, uh, did somebody blow up the world l- last night? Or at least a large part of it. People I love on the other side of the great big Pacific pond. Okay? And I worry about that. So then, if that didn't happen, I read the rest of the news. And you know what I see? A present evil age. Got up this morning. Four people went to eat waffles. And they went into eternity. Because some naked man running with a gun ran into the waffle shop and killed them all. 31 people in Afghanistan went to cast their votes at a polling station. And they were sent into a Christless eternity if they didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happened this morning. Death. Death destruction, evil, people doing horrible things to people. Another one that I saw this morning, this was what I read before breakfast. That really makes you hungry, doesn't it? The third thing I read is a man was sitting, eating, with his child sitting on his lap, and a homeless man came up who didn't know him and stabbed him him in the neck and killed him while he was holding his child. That's the evil age we live in, brothers and sisters. You know what we're doing at our church right now? We have a safety committee. And the safety committee is going to step up the security, step up the safety so that our kids are safer and our church is safer. So if some crazy killer comes in with a gun, we've taken steps to make sure that that person doesn't get very far. And we're taking it very seriously. Why? Because the world as it is described by Paul is the world as it is. It is an evil age. And in spite of how evil the age is, this is the age that Jesus Christ has delivered us out, out of it. He's rescued us from it. And it's interesting when you think of the whole idea of rescue or deliverance. You've got a person over here who's in a very bad situation, but there's absolutely nothing they can do to get themselves out of it. And then some person comes along. In this case, the Lord Jesus Christ. A person comes along, picks up the person, carries the person, and delivers them out of their situation into a position of safety, a better position. I don't know how many of you follow the news closely like I do with the weather. I'm a little bit of a weather buff, but last week was weather crazy because in Kauai, which is one of my favorite vacation spots, and we have friends who live there, in Kauai, last Sunday and Monday, they had so much rain, they had between 27 to 36 inches that fell in 24 hours, and they had horrible flash floods. And some of our friends lost their homes, and all kinds of crazy things were happening um, the The bison that live up in in the mountain areas in Kauai got released from where they were, washed down the stream, and so you 've got bison running around on Honolulu Bay Beach, and my friends are showing me their videos, showing me the floods, showing me everything, and one of the videos I saw, Bethany Hamilton's brother, Tim, was holding on, and Tim's about six foot one, he's holding on to to a tree, and he's standing in five foot of water that's rushing fast, and then his brother, Noah, comes up on a jet ski and rescues him out. Well, I want you to take a look at some of what happened so we can understand what's meant by this word rescue or deliverance. Nate, let's, let's take a look at a short video about what happened in Hawaii and then connect it with what Christ has done for us.
2: A San Diego family caught in the flooding in Kauai this weekend is now back home with quite the story to tell.
3: In the middle of the flooding and mudslides, legendary big wave surfer Laird Hamilton swooped in to save them and other vacationers just across the river
2: from his home. BC 7s Dave Summers is in Encinitas with more on that scary situation that pretty much Dave turned into an unforgettable memory for these folks.
3: Yeah, Mark and Catherine, isn't it the dream of everyone who lives in this world-renowned surf community we call Encinitas to be saved by Laird Hamilton? Well, the Williams family had a great uh, uh, appreciation for the surfer long before this, but now they think he is a super surfer. Record rain, 27 inches in just 24 hours, stranded the Williams family.
1: We tried not to let the kids see, but
2: I was terrified.
3: On their last day of vacation in Kwan.
2: It was kind of like scary, and I just wanted to go
0: home.
3: The Williams rented a house along the river. The rain forced it out of its banks, washing out roads and the bridge. That was the only way out. It's the only way out for anyone on the North Shore. With three kids.
2: It sounded... Like a stampede of buffalo. <laughs> Limited
3: food and water, and too many unknowns.
2: I just kept praying all night that angels would surround the house.
3: Instead, it was legendary surfer Laird Hamilton. <laughs> he
2: was not an angel,
3: but still pretty good.
2: He just kind of boated right up and was like, "Okay, come through the mud and the slime, and come throw your bags in, and let's go."
1: And the guy's got—he's got a lot of energy, right? And I mean, I don't even know if he owns a
3: T-shirt. <laughs> Hamilton's big wave reputation is well documented. But the Williams got to know his good nature firsthand. On the boat to safety, they took many pictures and videos. Hamilton ferried them to safety and even comforted the kid.
1: And now it just confirms him just being a total legend in my book. James says
3: Hamilton beat local authorities to the rescue, but given the choice...
2: There you
1: go. Okay, let's stop that video there. Um, that's pretty cool. To be rescued out of a flood by the world's best and and most amazing big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, who comes with his shirt off um, to swoop in and to save you and your family so that this person who you knew was a surfing legend now becomes your deliverer? Well, brothers and sisters, here's what happened to you. The person who came to rescue you was not an amazing surfer with his t-shirt off. The person who came to rescue you was the Son of God who came with his tunic off. And He brought you, not from a place of flood, to a place of safety several miles later. He brought you from a place of sin and from an eternity of being separated from God into the place where you would live in fellowship with God and communion with Him for all time and eternity because of a once-for-all deliverance. The people who leered, rescued, they were moved a few miles down, but guess what? Some of the people who were taken to that place found out that a few days later, a flash flood came to that area as well, and they weren't completely safe. But Jesus Christ, who's not a legend in modern times, but who is the Lord of all history, is the one who swooped down into your life, and he's delivered you. From this present age, this present darkness, slavery to your sins, guilt before God, a guilty conscience in your own heart, and the accusations of man because of his amazing grace. And that's what we're going to celebrate as we move through the book of Galatians. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you.